Hello, everyone. What's up? What's up? Welcome to another episode of Space Talk. I just want to give a warm welcome to everybody that is here who maybe had a wonderful Mother's Day this past weekend. Um, if you are a mom, happy Mother's Day. If it weren't for you, uh, we would not all exist. So thank you. Um, and for those of you who are, you know, lucky and fortunate enough to be around your mom during Mother's Day and to say hello and show her your love. I hope you guys had a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Um, I myself was in New York with my mom. So uh, hence why this episode is just about a day late because I was traveling yesterday coming back, uh, back home, back here. So um, hi, I hope you guys are doing well. Let's go ahead and start off this episode with, let's see, drum roll. What is one thing about Earth that surprises you? What is one thing about Earth that surprises you? I'm going to go ahead and leave that comment in the chat room. If you want to go in there and say, hi, what's up, Astro KV? Good to see you here. No, it's late your time. So uh, thanks for joining. And I thank you guys so much also for joining this episode, even though it's a little bit late and I did postpone it a couple times. Um, yeah, time zone still a little bit wacky and off right now. So uh, yeah. So just thanks for thanks for bearing with me. So what is one thing about Earth that surprises you? Um, okay, well, Y-O-U, I had a typo there, but that's okay. I think you guys know what I mean. So um, let's see for me. What is something about Earth that really surprises me? Um, for me, it's the fact that like the oceans are just so big. Uh, I think the water, the, the amount of water on the planet really surprises me because for land creatures like us um, who cannot breathe underwater, it is pretty shocking that we are kind of the dominant species on the planet uh, as far as civilization goes and communication. And yet uh, we can't breathe underwater. Although we have technology where we're able to allow ourselves to be underwater and breathe air, it's still uh, really fascinating to me because it makes you just think like if, you know, in the in the coming hundreds of years, if uh, predictions are correct and, and water, sea, sea level does keep rising, then will we reach a point where it's just a totally water planet, you know, like where there's just no more land and like what would happen? Just all the sea creatures would would basically become the dominant species. So that really surprises me about Earth because it's still so mysterious as far as what's going on in our oceans. Um, I mean, there's a lot that's known, right? I mean, I'm not a marine biologist, but there's a, a lot of people out there who've studied, uh, of course, the waters and the oceans and the the, the sea animals. Um, but I think it's still so, so mysterious to me, almost as mysterious as space. So that's something that surprises me. Um, but let's jump into what this episode is all about, which is our space events for this week. So I'm going to go ahead and pull up the weekly transmission, which I, of course, made sure to send early this week. I think I sent it on Friday. Um, and so for those of you who, if you wanted to, you know, read along with me, otherwise you don't have to just sit back, chill out and uh, learn a little bit about space things that are happening this week. So first, a big announcement is uh, my new show, Suppress Science, is now on YouTube. So uh, it is, you know, produced by Curiosity Stream. So it is available on the Curiosity Stream platform. But new episodes are coming out weekly on YouTube as well. So they're actually dropping each episode each week on there. So so far, it's the first two episodes that I've seen. I think episode three might might have just dropped as well. Um, so you could go check those out. The first episode is man and machine so kind of the the merging between humanity and um you know 
technology and machines that we've developed. And the second episode is on psychedelics. So really interesting stuff. Uh, I highly encourage you to check out both episodes. I learned a lot uh, personally just from all the different people that we got to speak to. And it was, it was quite fascinating. So I hope you guys like it too. So if you want to check that out here, let me share the link. Um, oh, it looks like these links aren't opening. How peculiar. They worked the first time when I opened it. So let me go to YouTube and type in Curiosity Stream. And if you just head to the Curiosity Stream um, YouTube channel, you'll be able to see it on there. Oh, good. A new episode just came out. This one is on race. Uh, so it's really interesting. This one was was really uh, also a very interesting one to, to, to share and to learn about because it kind of talks a little bit about um, – race as being more of a, a social construct and how does that break down? Is it biological or is it something that has actually been broken up? And uh, I, I encourage you watching the episode because um, it just kind of goes in a lot deeper into some of the, the knowledge and information about genetics. We kind of get into uh, different things as far as like, you know, cultural diversities and like where we live on the planet, where humans have migrated since we first evolved. And it's a really, it was a really fun, fun episode to, um, to shoot and to learn about. So I, again, I've learned a lot uh, just really working on the show. So it was really fun. Uh, so let's jump into deep sky objects for this week because there is a an object that is visible uh, for everyone on planet Earth, um, and that is on May 12th. So it's coming up. And so uh, this one is a globular cluster. Uh, a lot of these deep sky objects that are visible tend to be star clusters. And uh, I don't really know why that is. I guess just there there seems to be quite quite a lot of them that we're able to see without needing a super fancy schmancy telescope. So this one is the globular cluster in Serpens, which is a constellation. It's known as M5. This messier object is filled with millions of stars, and it is in ideal observation location for both the northern and summer, southern hemispheres. For those of you in the northern hemisphere, it starts to rise at about 25 degrees above your eastern horizon, just around 2118 CDT. So this is about 818 p.m. Central Time. Central Daylight Time, 8.18 p.m. It then starts to reach its highest point around 1.30 a.m. Central Time at about 61 degrees above your southern horizon. So again, you can go ahead and convert that or you can check the night before if you are about 12 hours ahead. You might want to check around, um, yeah, like, you know, again, when it's going to be about your time on May 12th, so early morning May 12th. Uh, early, early, like in, in the in the morning, so around like 1.30, 2 a.m., you should be able to see it. Southern Hemisphere, it starts rising at about 21 degrees above your eastern horizon, and this is around 7.31 p.m. local time. So I did put in Santiago, Chile for this one, uh, but that will be kind of based on wherever your location is and when it will start to rise, reaching its highest point of about 54 degrees um, at just around 12.41 a.m. above your northern horizon. So keep that in mind. If you're in the northern hemisphere, you're going to be facing south. If you're in the southern hemisphere, you're going to be facing north to try to see this globular cluster. And that is on May 12th. Okay, so for deep sky objects or must-see celestial events, 
Um, that was everything for Deep Sky Objects. So now let's move into some of our constellations and stuff. Um, by the way, if you guys want to still comment in the chat, we're just sort of – our question of the day was what is something about Earth that really fascinates you? Um, awesome. Astro KV saw the first episode on Curiosity Stream right on. What did you think of it? I hope you liked it. Um, I got to really have fun on that episode because we got to go to a biomechatronics lab at UCLA and I got to try out a few different very sensitive pieces of equipment that are tied to our touch. So one of them was a glove. Another one was um, a glove and a uh, augmented reality pair of glasses, which was pretty cool. And I got to um, control a machine by using this glove. So I was not at all in contact with the machine. And it was, it was really fun. It's really fascinating. And it looks like uh, Astro KV's most interesting thing is that it, it's like we have millions of species and yet we don't know about maybe most of them. Yeah, that's what's really interesting. Really interesting about the oceans, which I think is, is something that we might figure out down the line. So for our musty celestial events, uh, I put together a couple different sky charts for my area. Um, so, you know, this is based on sort of like the central United States northern hemisphere of the globe, May 8th and May 11th. Um, so I know May 8th was a couple days ago, uh, but this will help us sort of understand the, the position of the moon. It was the first quarter moon that was underneath the star Regulus, which is the brightest star of the Leo constellation. And they were just about 10 degrees apart. And as the nights are going on, the moon is moving further southeast so right now, today's the 10th. You'll probably notice it somewhere around um, still facing about southwest, and it's about to cross that, that southeast line moving over towards the Virgo constellation, which will be on May 11th. The moon will then be in its waxing gibbous phase, and it's going to be in that Virgo constellation, just about 28 degrees north of the bright star Spica. So this should be pretty cool to see. You should be able to see Spica because Spica is a, a pretty bright magnitude star. Um, and even with the moon being a, a, a waxing gibbous where it's growing, it's getting bigger, it's approaching the full moon phase. Uh, they're going to be a good amount of distance apart where the light from the moon shouldn't be affecting the brightness of Spica. Unless you're in a city where uh, there is a lot of light pollution, it might be a little tricky. It might look dimmer, that star. Um, but if you're in a pretty dark sky, you should have no problem seeing this really cool alignment between the moon and that star. And then, ooh, let's see, we've got a comment from Melissa. Ancient plants and species, especially extinct fauna. Whoa. Talk to us a little bit about that. That sounds really cool. Um, what are what are some other ancient plants and species? And what about fauna? Let me look up fauna, fauna. Because I I thought it was – oh, that's pretty cool. I was thinking fawn. Like I thought it was it was fawn, which is like a mythological creature. Yeah, I was thinking fawn. Uh, it's, a, it's like a goat man, half human, half goat. Um, but fauna is – it looks like a sloth creature. Let's see. Animals of particular region, habitat, or geological period. Interesting. The flora and fauna of Siberia. Whoa! So that's something fascinating to you is is the wildlife that it, that it existed and and doesn't 
any more. That's really interesting. So it's a group of, of, of animals. Um, and they were named uh, after a Roman goddess, goddess, which is really interesting. Uh, the handiest way to remember the difference between flora and fauna is that flora sounds like flowers, which are part of the plant world. Fauna, however, sounds like fawn, and fawns are part of the animal kingdom. That's pretty cool. Just found that on a quick Wikipedia little Google action. Um, that's super cool. What other what other plants are interesting to you that are ancient plant species? I'd love to learn a little bit more about that. Okay, moving into other must celestial events. May 10th to the 13th, Venus and Jupiter are visibly are visible early in the morning. Uh, they're at a really bright magnitude. So Venus and Jupiter, we've mentioned this before, are some of the brightest planets you can see in the night sky. Uh, both of them are the are typically the the brightest things you can notice if they are visible. Uh, other than the moon, it might be one of the first things that you can pinpoint. And uh, Jupiter is at a magnitude of negative four point zero, and Venus at a minus two point one. You'll be able to see this facing east. Uh, so this should be pretty cool, pretty cool for you to see. Uh, again, this is early morning, so this is going to be just before sunrise, about forty five minutes. Uh, just before sunrise. So if you're an early morning riser, you can be greeted by these two beautiful planets. Then on May 15th, we have a total lunar eclipse. This is going to be right around midnight Eastern daylight time. So maybe I can make another episode just about the total lunar eclipse and some more details on how you can catch that. But it should be pretty beautiful. And if you're going to be setting up a um, like a long duration camera or a time lapse of some sort, uh, you might want to get that set up pretty early, a little before midnight, just a few hours, so you could start to catch the transition of the moon going from its full moon phase all the way to being eclipsed and then back to being a fully white moon, which brings us to our moon phase. On May 14th at 12.14 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the moon reaches its full moon phase. Now, this is called the full flower moon, the full flower moon. And this is correlated with springtime, full flower moon. I'm going to do a real quick search for you guys. But we've talked about this before, kind of the the meaning and definition of moons when they have these sort of nicknames like the pink moon, or the strawberry moon. It's usually correlated to some kind of thing that like either farmers came up, came up with or um, – yeah, just just early observers of the moon, and it's tied to things like harvest or when um, like certain things are prominent, such as the strawberry moon so is the time you would harvest strawberries. The harvest moon is the time you'd harvest your crops in the autumn. Um, the so the flower moon uh, it is to signify flowers that are blooming during this month, and during this month of May uh, in certain regions is cherry blossom season. So when I was in New York, I did notice quite a lot of the cherry blossom trees were already blooming. Um, they actually started blooming earlier this year. Uh, they've been blooming earlier in recent years, so sometime around April rather than in the end of May, which is what I remember when I was a kid. Um, so they are blooming a little bit sooner, but that's what the full flower moon stands for. And it has to do with literally the flowers that are in bloom now. So April showers bring May flowers. We've probably have all heard that before. Um, and so that actually brings me to to our question from last week. We talked about what our favorite plant was, and we learned quite a lot about different flowers that you guys like. So if you want to maybe give a little shout out for any flower that you think is cool, 
um, feel free to do that. And you can type that in the chat. Okay, so that is our moon phase. And then we are wrapped up on our musty celestial events. We've just got a couple space history things here I put together for you all. Um, currently working on looking for other types of space history stuff. I feel like there was something else in May that I missed. Let me look real quick at my notes folder because I have all the different like space agencies when they were established. So let's see, Ariane Space. Let's see if there's anything for May. Okay, so this will be at the end of the month. European Space Agency was founded in May on May 30th. So I will keep that in mind. Okay, on May 11th in the year 1781, Pierre McCain discovered M104. M104 is the Sombrero Galaxy. The Sombrero Galaxy is really cool looking. It literally looks like a sombrero. It's an elliptical galaxy, um, so you can really tell by its shape. It uh, has a disk that you can see that's very distinct. But it also has all of this kind of halo-esque thing going on. And this is this is literally known as the halo around sort of the central bulge. And it is stars and starlight that are a, a gas and dust that is starting to disperse from the galaxy, which is causing sort of this elliptical shape um, of the specific galaxy. And you can catch this in um, kind of in between two different constellations. This is Virgo and Corvus. And you should be able to see this um, probably, I would say, if you have a really good telescope, you'll be able to see it now. So if you have a, a digital telescope that can locate this, um, or you have a telescope that you have to put in the specific location, I recommend checking out a few different astronomy resources to find out where exactly the numbers are that you need to put in, such as the right ascension and declination, which are just sort of like the coordinates for this galaxy. Think longitude, latitude, but in space. Uh, that's kind of how I like to sort of, sort of say it. Um, and it's within a lo the local supercluster of galaxies. So it is one of our neighbors. Um, it's about three-tenths the size of the Milky Way. And it's about oh, just below 30 million light years away from Earth and about 25,000 light years in size. So as we mentioned, a little smaller than the Milky Way. Milky Way is estimated to be about anywhere between 100,000 to maybe about 300,000 light years in size. They're kind of recent estimates say it could be as big as about 300,000 light years across. For a little bit of perspective on that distance, that is, if you're moving at the speed of light, it would take you 300,000 years to get from one end to the other of the galaxy. So that is the Sombrero Galaxy. Um, go check out some pictures of it. It looks pretty cool. It's, again, a really, really cool-looking galaxy. Um, I think galaxies in general just are, are pretty awesome. All right, on May 12th in 1881, E.E. E. Bernard discovered his first comet. So let's kind of check out a little bit about E.E. E. Bernard and this first, uh, this first, um, this first comet. So this was in 1876. Uh, he used a refractor telescope. So it was about five inch, 130 millimeter telescope. And in 1881 is when he discovered this very first comet, didn't announce his discovery, and then found his second uh, comet just a little bit later, in the year 1882. And, it's, and he also is known for Barnard's star. 
And if you want to kind of check out Barnard's star for a second, let's kind of go down this rabbit hole. Um, it's a red dwarf star. It's about six light years from Earth, so not that far. It will take you about if we, we if we achieve light speed travel, it'll only take us six years to get there. If we achieve faster than light travel, we could probably get there faster, which is pretty cool. It's located in the constellation Ophicus. And Ophicus is this funny constellation that was um, removed from the the horoscopes of astrology and then added back and freaked everyone out because everyone's like, wait a second, you're telling me I'm not a Leo, Virgo, Gemini, whatever, you know, all the different signs. And um, it, it, it was just like really funny. I think this was in like 2013 or 2012 or something like this. It ended up in the news. And it just really uh, uh, freaked out quite a lot of people who like very kind of strictly follow uh, a, maybe a daily horoscope and stuff like that. And um, because Ophicus, by by adding in this extra constellation, you now have to sort of split up the uh, amount of weeks that count towards each um, like each constellation or each sign of, of the of the horoscope or of the zodiac. And so there's like twelve constellations part of the zodiac. And was, when Ophicus was added in there, it was located, I think, somewhere between Virgo and Sagittarius. So it totally messed up just, yeah, all of the, the formation of, of what everyone sort of followed, who, who followed it very strictly and eventually got removed. So I guess everyone was okay. Uh, but it was, it was, it was, it was pretty funny. Anyway, uh, just a little thing I found out about in the news. Um, it's the fourth nearest star known, uh, that is an individual star that is close to the sun. So uh, as we mentioned in the past, most stars actually are part of binary systems. Uh, most stars actually have a companion. They're not solo stars. So this is uh, one of the fourth, this is the fourth known solo star that is closest to the sun. And this is also, you know, um, there, there's also the Alpha Centauri system, which we've kind of maybe heard about quite a bit in, in the news or in science fiction novels or in, say, like, the book or movie Contact. Um, I think, oh, no, that was Vega. I think that was Vega. It wasn't Alpha Centauri. But Alpha Centauri is a pretty close system. And then our next, one of our other closest stars is Barnard's star. It's a red dwarf. And red dwarf stars um, are pretty cool stars. Like, literally cool in temperature. <laughs> Not just, like, kind of like, hey, cool, man. And then I would say they're also kind of, hey, cool, man, because they... Um, there's there's a lot of them that exist within our galaxy, a lot of them that have been discovered. And because they're cooler in temperature, their Goldilocks zone, our habitable zone, is located a lot closer to them. Um, think, you know, when you have a really big campfire or you have a small lighter, like a very small little torch. Um, if you're really cold, you're going to want to stand a lot closer to a smaller flame. But if you're cold, but you have this huge campfire, you probably don't want to be as close to it. You have to be a little bit further away. If you're too far away, you'll be really cold, freeze, and maybe not survive. If you're a lot, if you're way too close, you'll you know get too hot and possibly also not survive. And so this is how the Goldilocks zone or habitable zone is determined in space. So what that is is planets that need to be not too far, not too close, just right, really good distance. And so red dwarf stars are interesting because um, they're, they are cooler stars. And so a lot of the, their, their planets could be located closer to them. 
and could have very favorable conditions for potential life to exist around them. And Barnard's star does have a planet uh, that orbits pretty close, much closer to its star than the Earth does. It's, it's right at about, if Barnard's star was where the sun is, its planet is where Mercury is. Now, although Mercury is too close to our sun for life to exist, at least our type of fragile biological life, uh, Barnard's planet, Barnard's star's planet, can possibly have life because the star is a lot smaller. And so it's in a very kind of favorable region where they may possibly be life there. So really, really interesting, uh, interesting, interesting star there. Um, let's see if there's anything else. Yep, its distance is just about uh, five light years from Earth. And um, that is what E.E. E. Barnard is known for. I'm going to do a really short, quick music break, and then we're going to go ahead and hop back into our final thing of this, which is going to be Astronomy Word of the Week. All right. I'll be right back. Quick music break. All right, let's hop back into it. Okay, so last thing for uh, this week for our must-see celestial events, for our space history, for just kind of our kickoff of week two of May, is going to be our astronomy word of the week or astronomy term of the week, kind of depending on what it is that we we choose. Um, and this week, I, I chose the word transit. And uh, the reason for that was because uh, transit is a term that's used a lot in astronomy. There's even a method that's named after transit called the transit method. And um, transit is, is yeah, just something that, that is first is, is first kind of been determined when it came to the planets in our very own solar system, such as Mercury and Venus, which are the two planets between Earth and the sun. And... When either of these planets would pass in front of the sun, we can see their silhouette. We can see their shadow. And this was known as them transiting in front of the sun. So when Mercury or Venus crosses the disk of the sun, making the planet visible as a black dot in the silhouette, or when a moon passes across the face of its planet uh, or its parent planet, um, this is what transit is. But transit also refers to the instant when a celestial body crosses the meridian and thus is in the highest part of the sky. And so um, transit is, is again, it's kind of like, like so the, the New York City Transit or the, the Metro Transit Authority. Uh, you know, you think about like transportation. So kind of similar, similar. Um, but with these things, when it comes to objects in space, it's a very helpful sort of just way of determining what else is out there. Uh, when you're able to um, sort of determine if there's a planet orbiting a star, such as Barnard's star, which we were just talking about, you can point a telescope at it, observe it for a long enough time, uh, for, for a very, very long time, because you don't know if anything's going to pass in front. You don't know if there's a planet there. And if there is a planet, we also may not know its orbital period. The orbital period is, is what it sounds like. 
the period or the time that it takes for the planet to orbit around its star. So sometimes you could be there for a very long time waiting for this planet to cross in front of the sun. Um, depending on maybe you just pointed the telescope at it, but it just happened to pass the star and it's going to take another year, uh, maybe to, to go fully around it. So um, when you do catch that and you see a dipness in the bright, in the, a dip in the brightness of that star, that means that there was probably some kind of object that passed in front that caused that star's brightness to go from how it usually looks pretty stationary, you know, the brightness of say a 60 watt light bulb, an object passes in front for a brief moment, it suddenly goes and diminishes to maybe like a 40 watt light bulb, it gets a little bit dimmer, a little darker. And then the object completely passes beyond that light bulb. And then the light bulb goes back to being bright again, like a 60 watt light bulb. This is just like a star in space. And when a planet passes in front, this is a way that um, astronomers searched for exoplanets for a long time was through the transit method, looking for dips and brightnesses of stars. Um, so, uh, so telescopes like TESS, the Transiting Exoplanetary Survey Satellite, literally named transiting, looking for things using the transit method. Um, it also doesn't just look for dipnesses and bright, it dips and brightness. It also wants to look at the atmosphere of these planets. And so when it's passing in front or transiting in front of its star, it's able to determine its spectra, which is uh, the kind of the, the makeup, this is like a thumbprint um, of elements that we know are present in the star because we were just observing the star. And then you take its spectra the moment the planet crosses in front of the star. And then you look at the differences in spectra or, or it's in its, its visible light spectrum or just electromagnetic spectrum. You might notice different things there. You might notice uh, different types of elements. And what will show up are these absorption lines or emission lines. So either little black lines kind of in the rainbow. And I encourage you to check this out. Um, or, or the opposite, uh, where there might be elements that are present or elements that are not present. And when you then compare these two spectra, then you're able to see um, what the planet contains in its atmosphere compared to what that star contains um, as far as, you know, whatever the star has. And, and also, stars tend to not have heavier elements beyond looking at the periodic table of elements. They tend to not have heavier elements other than iron. Uh, just because of nuclear fusion that's happening in their core. Nuclear fusion, which is the literal fusion between uh, nucleuses of atoms of different elements, uh, it, it can happen with hydrogen, with helium, um, with, and then that can turn into deuterium and, and, and carbon and, and there's other elements that have been observed and been detected. But when it reaches iron, it gets too heavy and its core can start to become unstable. And... Um, Stars can no longer do that. Stars cannot keep fusing these elements uh, because it's just it's it gets starts to get too too heavy for for the star. And so um, that's probably, it's probably better ways to sort of describe that. But uh, again, this is this is what what uh, was will what will help you sort of determine what's on that planet. So if you end up seeing really complex elements, like very heavy elements, when you take that that spectrum of the planet when it's in front of the star, you can then say, okay, these 
elements must be part of that planet because they weren't there when I took the spectra of that star without the planet in front. So really important method for trying to determine, um, yeah, like if, if there's planets around a star or to determine, you know, early days, the orbit of Venus and the orbit of Mercury, which is, you know, again, between Earth and the sun. Um, and so being able to look at this, being able to sort of determine when the, when it's passing in front can also help you understand the distance between you and that object. So all this stuff is uh, really important when it comes to astronomy. And these methods were developed because it's 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 an observational science. We, we can't like physically experiment on this stuff in front of us. We can't like grab a galaxy and gra- grab a star and see what happens when we shake it up in a Petri dish. So it, it, it's a little bit more complicated um, to sort of do these types of experimentations or understandings of what's happening in space and these observations. You have to do it from afar and that can be, that can be pretty tricky. So that's why these methods are, are created. All right. So that is about everything I have. Um, uh, if you guys have any questions, feel free to type that in the chat. Otherwise, I'm going to go ahead and sign off for today's episode of Space Talk. Um, once again, if you joined you know, a little bit later in the episode, I just want to give a shout out to um, all the moms out there for Mother's Day. I hope that you guys had a wonderful Mother's Day. Um, if it weren't for you, we wouldn't all be here. So thank you for, for, for being uh, a very important uh, person, very, very important, playing a very important role in um, our lives. And I got to be with my mom this weekend. It was very lovely. And um, if, if you also are, are fortunate enough to be around your mom during Mother's Day, I hope that you had a wonderful, a wonderful time with her. Um, okay, so that is about everything. Uh, thank you all so much for being here. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Um, again, feel free to, uh, you know, reach out for anything, send me a DM if you have any any type of stuff that pops up in the night sky that, that you want to share. I always love to look at the stuff that you guys are working on or that you're imaging. Alrighty, guys, well, have a wonderful rest of your day. Make sure you get outside and look up at the sky and explore all of the stars in the heavens above. And as always, add Astra.